This message comes from NPR sponsor Comcast Business. Is it possible to get business internet you can really rely on? It is with 99.9% network reliability from Comcast Business. Powering possibilities. You're listening to Shortwave from NPR. Hey there, Shortwavers. Aaron Scott here. With me, Regina Barber. And also one of our most beloved colleagues, Elsa Chang. Aww. Mm-hmm. So, Elsa, we brought you on to share some science joy we're seeing in the headlines and the journals that we are really into. Always happy to pretend I actually know something about science. Oh, I'm sure you do. You're learning each time you come on, <laughs> exactly. and I'm sure you know stuff. Well, I love chatting science with both of you, and I hear that this time we're talking about how albatrosses use sound to navigate. Yep. And a rare glimpse of how two animals interacted with each other on the ocean floor 480 million years ago. Wow. Plus the best way to watch the Orionid meteor shower this weekend. Um, The, the obvious answer for that is with wine, right? <laughs> <laughs> yep. I'm not giving anything away, Elsa. You and our listeners will just have to keep listening to find out on this episode of Shortwave from NPR. This message comes from EarthX. The EarthX 2024 Environmental and Sustainability Congress of Conferences is happening in April and brings together all sides with one important mission, protect the planet. Go to earthx.org to register. This message comes from NPR sponsor Solgar. As people age, cellular function declines, which may impact changes in energy and strength. Solgar Cellular Nutrition is a holistic collection of cellular nutrients formulated to help fight cellular decline and promote cell health. Learn more at cellularnutrition.solgar.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This message comes from NPR sponsor, RSM. Change waits for no one. But when it happens, and it always does, be prepared to take charge with RSM's proven advisors who make it their business to fully understand yours. RSM brings human insights powered by technology so you can leverage the knowledge of future-focused minds who look beyond the ordinary. RSM, experience the power of being understood. Take charge now at rsmus.com Spotify. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. All right, Elsa, you're our guest, so we're giving you choices. Which topic do you want to start with? Oh, clearly with the albatrosses. Yes, albatross <laughs> are amazing. They're enormous. They have the largest wingspan of any bird on Earth, up to 11 feet. They can weigh as much as a toddler. And they're amazing long-distance flyers. They can cover thousands of miles in a single trip. Wow. According to one calculation, over the course of their lifetime, they actually fly the equivalent of going to the moon and back 10 times. Oh, my God. Yes. 
Yeah, but like with all seabirds, all this travel raises a huge question. How do they navigate over the open ocean? There's no visible landmarks, so researchers think they must be using other cues. There's some evidence that they use smell and the Earth's magnetic field. And now researchers have evidence for a new cue. In a paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, they found that wandering albatrosses tend to fly towards Infrasound. Infrasound? Mm-hmm. <laughs> is that like infrared light, but but for sound? What is that? Yes, exactly. It's just like infrared light is low-frequency light. Infrasound is low-frequency sound. Oh. We humans can't hear it, but it's everywhere out there on the ocean because it's created whenever waves are colliding with each other. This is one of the paper's lead authors, Natasha Gillies. She's a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Liverpool. So the idea that other animals can perceive infrasound isn't totally novel. So um, elephants, some large cetaceans like whales are known to use it for communication. Um, But the idea that it might be a cue for movement um, has been much less well explored and certainly not at all in seabirds. Wow. I had no idea about elephants. Okay, so how did the researchers explore this with albatrosses? Albatrosses? <laughs> albatrosses. Um, they created acoustic maps of the ocean using data from a network of microphones that are set up to actually detect nuclear explosions. And then they attached GPS trackers to nearly 90 birds and compared where they flew to these acoustic maps. And they found that the birds were more likely to fly towards areas with louder infrasound created from strong colliding waves. Okay, so it seems like the birds were actually trying to fly into areas with strong waves. Why would they do that instinctually? Well, they rely on wind to soar. And choppy, wavy areas generally mean a lot of wind and updrafts to give them a boost. Mm -hmm. Waves crashing against a shoreline also create infrasound, so they thought it also could have to do with them finding their way home. Natasha says, to her knowledge, this is the first study to show that any animal is using infrasound to navigate, but she thinks it's just the beginning. And studying infrasound actually has implications for humans, too. Um, Scientists are using it to improve weather predictions and climate models. Okay, so that is from above the sea, but now we're going to go under the sea, right? Regina, you have a story about a really cool fossil from the ocean floor. Yeah, this fossil is from 480 million years ago. We're talking well before the dinosaurs. And the scene was detailed in a study that came out last week in Communications Biology. The fossil shows how animals lived with each other and sometimes on each other. Yeah, in this case, a cephalopod with a shell, which is basically an ancient relative of the squid, It died and fell to the seafloor, and then these sea worms took up residence on its shell and built tough tube-like houses around themselves. (laughs) Yeah, you can see 88 of them growing all over its dead body. (gasps) Timothy Topper, a paleontologist not associated with the study, said it looked like a cephalopod having a bad hair day. A cephalopod that looks like Medusa. Wait, so like a bunch (laughs) of worms living on a corpse? This is so gross, guys. Yeah, yeah. This is our Halloween theme. Although, you know, this happens at the bottom of the ocean every day. You might have heard about whale falls, Elsa, where like a whale dies and sinks to the seafloor and then its carcass becomes this giant all-you-can-eat buffet (laughs) for crabs and other sea creatures that, you know, are living in this environment where there's just not much food. So you got to get it when you can find it. Wait, wait, wait. Back to the worms, though. What is so special about this particular fossil? So scientists have found other fossils that just had fragments of the worms' homes on them. But Timothy says what's exciting here is that it's a whole colony. And you can see these two species, the worms and the dead cephalopod, interacting 480 million years ago. Yeah, that's one of the things that makes this fossil such a big deal to Karma Nanglu, the lead author of the study. 
He says the worms in this fossil are showing something called frozen behavior. They're still found like on the dead shells of bivalves and things like that, growing their tubes almost morphologically identical. It's a strategy that's kept them through every major mass extinction. They, they just kept on doing it. And, you know, half a billion years, no need to change. So disgusting, but so incredibly cool. All right. I want to end now on meteor showers. What do we got? Yeah, so the Orionid meteor shower peaks this weekend. You can actually see the shower now or even days after this window, but this weekend is your prime sighting time. And the meteors you're seeing are actually rocky dust burning up as it enters our atmosphere. And um, Elsie, you might need some coffee or hot cocoa because the peak magic happens in the wee hours between midnight and dawn. Yeah, super late. And we're talking late Friday, October 20th and into the morning of Saturday, October 21st. All night long, baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why would it be worth it for anyone to stay up all night for this? Like, what's so special about this particular meteor shower? Well, Elsa, all meteor showers are special. This one, though, has a couple of notable things. These meteors are pieces of a very well-known comet. I'll give you one guess as to which one it is. Haley's? You got it. It's like the only comet I know offhand. (laughs) Easy peasy. Um, So as Halley's Comet travels in orbit, it leaves behind this whole path of dust and debris. Which becomes a meteor shower when it enters Earth's atmosphere. The Orionid meteors are especially known for their brightness and speed. We're talking 41 miles per second. So they leave glowing trails, which can last for several seconds to minutes. And one other fun fact, the Orionids get their name from the constellation Orion because it actually looks like that's where they're coming from. Hmm. but they can be seen all across the night sky. Okay, maybe you sold me. I will stay up maybe all night for this. It's much easier (laughs) for me to stay up all night than to get up really, really early in the morning anyway. So any other tips on how best to see this shower? Well, ideally, you want to try to find an area like away from city lights, street lights, and always give your eyes time to adapt to the dark. We're talking something like 30 minutes or so. And at its peak under ideal conditions, the shower is expected to produce about 20 visible meteors an hour. So be patient. You aren't going to see one every few seconds. Bring plenty of wine. Whatever it takes to keep you awake, Elsa. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. It is always a joy. It was real great. Oh, you guys are so welcome. Before we head out, we want to give a huge thank you to our Shortwave Plus listeners. We so appreciate you. We thank you for being subscribers. Shortwave Plus helps support our show. And if you're a regular listener, we'd love for you to join so you can enjoy the show without sponsor interruptions. Find out more at plus.mpr.org slash shortwave. This episode was produced by Burley McCoy, Kai McNamee, and Viet Le. It was edited by Christopher Intagliata and our managing producer, Rebecca Ramirez. Anil Oza checked the facts, and the audio engineers were Robert Rodriguez and Maggie Luthar. Beth Donovan is our senior director, and Anya Grenman is our senior vice president of programming. I'm Regina Barber. And I'm Aaron Scott. Thanks, as always, for listening to Shortwave from NPR. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies solve food. From employee meal plans to on-site staffing to concierge ordering support. With corporate accounts, nationwide restaurant coverage, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com.